And welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us here on the uh, Sports Rivals. I'm Gary Thorne. I think you're going to have a great time again today with our guests. Our purpose here is to preserve memories of classic sports rivalries done through the words of those who participated. These are the rivalries that are described from the inside out. And you get to hear some of the stuff that uh, doesn't usually make the news. And today, two great guests, two outstanding major league pitchers, Mark Langston, had a 16-year career from uh, 1984 through 99. He had 179 wins, ERA of 397 for his career. Mark had four all-star appearances, an outstanding defensive pitcher as well, won seven gold gloves, now works in the media radio side for the Angels. And Bird Blylevin, his career from 1970 to 1992, Bird is in the Hall of Fame, Went in in the class of 2011, went in with one of the best curveballs in the history of baseball. Anybody who faced him said it was uh, one that bent your knees. And uh, threw a new hitter in 97, ironically, against the Angels, a team he would play for uh, with a teammate of Mark Langston, actually, for a couple of years. The no-hitter, 3,701 strikeouts in his career, 287 wins. For Burt, he was a two-time World Series champion with Pittsburgh and Minnesota. Burt was born in the Netherlands, has gone back to help them out with their baseball program, and we have the World Baseball Classic being played. Ended up being raised, though, in California and grew up listening and enjoying California baseball. So, Mark Langston, Burt Blylevin, it is great to have you with us. Because Mark will probably only get one shot to go first, because once Bird starts, <laughs> starts, that'll be the end of it. We're going to do this this rivalry backwards a little bit. And we're going to talk about when you were teammates with the Angels, 1990 and 1992. Both of you were pitching with the Angels. And Mark wanted to make sure that he gets in a story about a rivalry with his teammate, Bert Blylevin. Go at it, yeah. Mark. Absolutely, Gary. And, and obviously, with the numbers you just threw off on Bert, what the hell would happen to the sports writers? How come it took so long for Bert to get into the Hall of Fame is beyond me. But the rivalry with Bert, obviously, going against a guy like Bert Blylevin, uh, you know, you have always had to be on your game. But my rivalry with Bert really came when we were teammates with the Angels. And Bert is. Uh, a legendary prankster, and uh, I remember the first week, and again, I'm brand new to the Angels. All I'm trying to do is be invisible, try to fit in with the ball club. So during the season, as soon as the season opened, I'm sitting on the bench. All of a sudden, I hear, ah, 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 ah. I look down, my shoes are on fire, and I'm like, holy crap. I get some water, put them out, and everybody's laughing at me, and I'm laughing. I'm going, oh, that's great. This happens again, night. After night, after night, for six straight nights, my shoes are on fire. I'm paying attention. I'm watching the, the big screen, but I'm watching for Bert. He would just shimmy underneath our bench, and he had this long uh, lighter, and he would just reach out. And I don't know how he was, he was able to do this because I was paying attention. And he was still, as soon as your eyes went to the video board, bang, there we go. Fire in the hole. Firing the hole. So it got to the point to where I was I was running literally running out of turf shoes, tennis shoes, everything that I had. I was calling Nike saying, Hey, I need a new shipment of shoes. Bert is lighting everything that I have on fire. 
and I was getting pissed. I'm getting to the point <laughs> where I'm, I've had enough. This was fun three or four times, but six straight nights in a row, I had all I could take. Uh, so it finally came to the seventh time. Sure enough, he lit my shoes on fire again, and I, I, I got my fist ready to go. I'm ready to fight him now because I've had all I could take with my shoes being lit on fire. And I was so pissed and Bert's down there laughing and everybody's laughing. I'm, and I'm done with this. So as we get towards the end of the game, I had to run back up and, and I think I borrowed somebody's shoes to finish the game because I didn't have any more. So as the game ends, I go, all right, I'm going to get this guy one way or another. So right as we're about to go out and shake hands after a W, I had a big old cup of red Gatorade and I walked over and Bert was right towards the top step and I poured it all over his uniform, all over him. Thinking, all right, take that. You're not going out on the field. We're going to shake hands. And I sprinted out, and I'm shaking hands. I look back. Here's Bert with red Gatorade all over his uniform, all over in front of a packed house, shaking hands. I'm going right there. I went, I'm done. I can't ever one-up this guy. I am going to just sit in the corner. If you want to light everything that I got on fire, so be it. Uh, first of all, kids, don't do this at home, okay? <laughs> but you know what, Mark? Wait, wait, you said you wanted to be invincible, okay? And you know you didn't want to be seen. But I think you got to talk about your first angel start. Uh, that's the thing that I remember. Uh, you know, of course, you signed with Montreal and you came up with Seattle Mariners. You were in that Randy Johnson trade, I believe, were you not? I was in that. Yes, I was trading yeah. from Seattle. And as you grow up in your career you always think you're going to spend your entire career with that organization you you don't know any better until all of a sudden they call you in the room and go hey you've been moved to a different team and that was a big deal for me because i thought i would be a mariner my entire career traded to montreal and uh you know obviously just a, a ordinary lefty came back in the deal named randy johnson uh turned out to be the best left-hander ever in the history of the game that deal worked out okay for the Mariners. but uh, And then I was a free agent at the end of the year, end up signing with the Angels. There was a lockout in 1990, so we only got three weeks of spring training in. Uh, and I was I was the day three pitcher. I, I You might have been the opening day starter for us, Bert. And, uh, I believe I was, yes. Yeah, you were. So I was game three. And um, as it turns out, I, I was facing the Seattle Mariners, the team that I was traded from the year before. My closest friends uh, were on that team. Very difficult start for me from the standpoint of trying to mentally stay as focused as I can. My One of my dearest, closest friends and my roommate when I was with Seattle, Alvin Davis, he gets in the box and he's smiling at me. And it's like <laughs> so many distractions. And it, when it's your first start, you're, you're going to be distracted any way you look at it. But obviously pitching against the team that uh, you used to play for was was that more intense. As it turns out, I, you know, walked some guys. I got to the seventh inning, and, and I had run out of gas. And I remember Doug Grader, they came in and asked me. I said, hey, I'm tired. Usually, as Bert knows, you're programmed for nine innings. But with only three weeks of spring training, I was only supposed to go five. And as that game kept getting deeper and deeper, I, I just ran out of gas. But it turns out there was no hits by the Mariners when they took me out. And that's where Mike Witt, the great Mike Witt, and, you know, it's, that's for so many years I had seen Mike Witt from the other side when I was with Seattle. He was with the Angels. He comes in out of the bullpen, and they were booing him. 
and he finishes the last two innings and it turns out to be a combined no hitter. So uh, not the, uh, the way you have it drafted in your head. You would like to finish that. Uh, and Witter and I have talked about it a ton. And for me, it, it almost felt like a glorified spring training game uh, because of the outcome. And you weren't able to do kind of the things that you would like to do. Well, and I think I think about that game too. It wasn't like a six to nothing win. It was a one nothing ball game that you ended up uh, pitching a no hitter along with Mike Witt. Yeah, it was one nothing. So there was no margin for error. And uh, you know, I was always a guy that may have walked a few guys in my career, and and certainly there were some base runners that were were present in that game. But it's just one of those. I just didn't have the base to be able to continue in that game, uh, and so that's. That's that's the information I gave to Doug Rader, and they made the move, which that's that was the move that, uh, you know, that probably for sure needed to be made. I think back in 1990, I think we're pretty excited when you signed, you know, as a free agent with the Twins, because we already had, you know, Chuck Finley, we had Kirk McCaskill, Mike Witt was part of that rotation a little bit, uh, Jim Abbott. I kind of want to talk about Jim Abbott because what a class individual. And I know you probably, you, you played with Jimmy longer than I did, but what he was able to accomplish, uh, you know, with the, with the defect of his losing his right arm at birth, uh, unbelievable. Oh, for sure. In fact, Jim Abbott's very first major league start. This is a guy that spent zero days at the minor league level. He made the team out of spring training in 89 uh, and, he, and so his very first start in the big leagues, when I was with Seattle, I was pitching against him. And I remember going to warm up down in the bullpen. This is his first big league start. And, and I know, Bert, you might have to shake the cobwebs off to go back to your first big league start. But the just the anticipation, everything that's running through your head is enough. But I looked down at Jim Abbott, and there probably was 25 photographers and people following him on the field out towards the bullpen. I'm like, I was like going, dang, that that's just that extra added pressure. Uh, and I ended up coming out on top on that game, which uh, I, I make sure I let Jim know that every time I see him, but you're <laughs> right. One of the most special human beings uh, that I've ever been around. There is nothing. And I mean, nothing that this guy can't do. Bert's a big golfer. So am I, I played golf with Jim plenty of times. He'll carve your heart out for a buck. Uh, so he, he is one of those athletes, those gifted athletes that, uh, you look at it and the first, maybe three or four days you're with him, you're like, oh man, that's impressive. And then after that, he's just like, this is normal for him. You, you, you don't even think about it, what he had to do and what he had to overcome. Uh, sir, seriously, one of the most inspirational stories and one of the greatest human beings I, I've ever been around. Yeah. Class kid, class kid. Greg, can you talk a little bit about, <clears throat> for both of you, but as pitchers at the major league level, how much are you paying attention to what other pitchers are doing and measuring yourself against one another, even if you're not on the same team, but you're looking around seeing what other people are doing? Well, Mark, I, I think you were young when you came up, but I was only 19 years old when I came up to the Minnesota Twins in 1970, and I was very fortunate to have a couple veterans. I was invited to spring training as an 18-year-old. Uh, I turned 19 in April once the season started. But, you know, to, to rub shoulders with Jim Perry, who won the Cy Young in 1970, Jim Cott, fellow Dutchman, born in uh, Holland, Michigan. So he, they kind of took me underneath their wing. On that staff, of course, back then, we only had a four-man 
starting staff. And the other two guys in spring training that was on that staff was Louis Tiant and Dave Boswell. So wow. they had a good four-man staff. And I was sent down to AAA, and Bozzie and Tiant got hurt, and I got the call-up. But uh, in spring training, that was so important for me at a young, as a youngster, basically, less than a year out of high school, to go and watch these guys work. And then when I went to the Metropolitan Stadium in Minnesota, uh, you know, you have the mounds that now's a lot of ballparks. The mounds are in left field and one team's in right field. Well, at the stadium at, the, at where the Mall of America is today, Metropolitan Stadium, the mounds were kind of like side by side. And I used to go out there and watch Jim Perry, Jim Cott start a ball game. But, you know, 20 feet away is Jim Palmer or, you know, Catfish Hunter. I learned so much by watching. And, Mark, you probably did the same thing because you came up as a youngster. Oh, there's no doubt about it. You always looked. And you, Gary, you mentioned the curveball from Bert. And it's it's something that everybody in the game of baseball wanted to emulate. And so what you would do, you would, if you saw somebody with something that was extraordinary, being young, you got to wait until you put some time in to be able to go over and have these conversations. But you would try to go over and talk to somebody uh, and how to perfect that, what they did, how they, how they got that to be such a great pitch. I remember playing with the, the Padres in 1998 and Kevin Brown's on there. And he, he literally had one of the best sinking fastballs I had ever seen. Uh, and so I would sit there and pick his brain. How do you hold this? What are you doing? Where are you gripping this? Where's your thumb? And I would sit there and try to pick up little things. And you always tried everything on your side day. And if it worked, you put it in your holster. If it didn't, you threw it out. So there's no doubt about it. You pick up a lot of stuff from either watching somebody if you look at my windup, I had a big high leg kick. My leg kick was morphed between, I grew up in the Bay Area. I watched Vita Blue and Juan Marichal. So my my leg kick was morphed between those two guys because those are the guys I saw a lot. So I had a big high leg kick, and uh, it was a combination of watching these two guys with big leg kicks really use their lower half. Well, you were known for your fastball, but you also had a very good breaking ball, too. Yeah, it, it's definitely a pitch that, uh, you know, it, it's a slurve, curve, slurve, in between a slider and a curveball. I threw it hard, uh, and, but it's you mentioned fastball, and that's I was a guy that I came hard in, in, on the inside part of the plate. I tried to make that uh, a part that the hitters knew that I was going to be there. And then my breaking ball would come off that same plane and try to get them to swing over the top of it. And uh, there's no doubt about it. I, I didn't have that curveball where their their knees would buckle like you had. But, uh, I, you know, it's it's a pitch. True. There's no doubt about it. It worked. It's it's just so much time you spend with that trying to figure out how to perfect that. You know, we've had a lot of fun playing baseball, but you know what? And both of us had the opportunity to play major league baseball gary you had an opportunity to watch so much baseball and i think over the years with me being at animals now for the twins for many years and mark you're now with the angels and gary with baltimore you know i have seen sometimes the fastball disappear everybody's wanting to change ups they want to throw you know two seamers they forget about the fastball what the fastball does and i was always a I was taught early on by my first pitching coach, Marv Grissom, 
to control your fastball. You got to be able to hit that spot over and over and over. And, you know, that helped me out. So many people talked about my curveball, but it was the conversation I had when I was 19 years old in Anaheim. I had a chance to sit on the bench. Marv Grissom, again, was my pitching coach. He knew Don Drysdale. Don Drysdale and Dick Emberg were doing TV games, radio games, TV combined. They didn't throw a lot of TV back then. But I had a chance to sit and listen to Don Drysdale talk to me about pitching for about 15, 20 minutes. And I learned so much from that man. It was unbelievable. And I carried everything that he taught me about pitching inside. Don't be afraid to knock your mother down. You know, she'll get back up. That type of philosophy. And I tell you what, you want, I wanted to pick the brains of everybody that walked in there that had success or I wanted to watch. And sometimes, you know, I, I go to spring training for the twins uh, for a couple of weeks and I'm surprised that guys don't want to ask me, you know, how did you throw your curveball? or probably half the guys don't know who the hell I am. but but it's just when I grew up and I think Mark you're the same way you wanted to pick the brains of the guys that had success and you wanted to emulate them or pick up little tips that could make you a better pitcher oh there's no doubt about it and uh one one of the stories that I do remember with you Bert is uh we were playing the Oakland A's and you talked about you you sit on the bench and you and you watch a guy like Bert out there on the mound and you can learn so much by his competitiveness. But I remember this one game against the Oakland A's, and this is when they had McGuire, Canseco, all these guys. And there was a day game in Oakland, and Bert's on the mound. And I remember Jose Canseco hit a he, he hit a ball pretty far off. Yeah, he did. And he sat there and he watched it a little bit. And then that slow little jog around home plate and you're staring at him all the way around the bases. He's touching the bases. He gets the home plate. You might've barked at him a little bit saying, Hey, run the bases. No, I barked at him a lot. (laughs) Well, I know you did. You were yelling at him and I'm on the bench just going, wow, that is, you know, something's going might happen this next at bat. Sure enough, next at bat, bam, fastball right in the ribs of Conseco. You smoked him, and he's going to first base. And you guys, you were walking towards the line, screaming at him, and the whole way as he got to first base. And and I'm like going, yes, that's how you take care of business. His next at bat, he comes up, and he hits a two-iron, literally a lot drive. And I'm not making this up a line drive that hits into the center field seats and he stands at home plate, crosses his legs, crosses his arms and didn't move the entire time until that ball hit in the seats. And then he went to first base, twirling his bat and skipping and you followed him. You left the mound and you're literally, as he's jogging around the bases, you're two feet from him, screaming at the top of your lungs. I'm going to drill you up in the neck. neck. You were screaming at me the entire way around. It was one of the funniest things. It's not funny from the home run, but I, I it was, you talk about the competitiveness. Uh, it, it was something to see. I, I had never seen anything like that in my life. Well, that was 1992. I remember that. My shoulder was killing me. I come back from rehab. Uh, I got operated on in 91, missed all of 91 because of the shoulder surgery and came back in May. 
And I knew that was late in the season for me, uh, that Oakland game. And you know what? I'd given up. I gave up 430 home runs in my career. And I, I swear to God, Mark, that was that he took four minutes. It seemed like to ground the bases his first time out. And yep. Bill Schroeder was our was our catcher, and I went in between innings after he hit that first home run. I told Rock, he's mine. So of course, Bill Schroeder. You know, we had so many practical jokers on that ball club. I said, I'm drilling them the next time up. So Bill Schroeder puts down fastball away first pitch i shake off he puts down two for curveball i shake off then he kind of slowly puts fastball with a finger inside yeah and i ended up hitting him and then you know you know i don't know if both benches came on the field nothing happened i i know i pretty much said what I needed to say. We're talking about our mothers walking down that first baseline. <laughs> well, the next time up he did, he, he clobbered another one. And, and I remember, I think that might have been before I got taken out of the ball game. And Doug Rader, who I love, he was a yep. great manager, a great person. He came out and he took me out and he looked at me and says, I love you. <laughs> and I walked off the field. I think that was one of my last starts in the big leagues. My shoulder was killing me, but I wish I was 19 years old oh, no when doubt. I threw that pitch uh, that hit him in the ribs because I would have broke a rib, I guarantee you. When I was being at 41, that fastball just wasn't there anymore. <laughs> Bird, did you ever have a conversation with Jose either at the time or later Hell on? Hell no. That? Hell no. I don't even like the guy. <laughs> He did write a good book, though. <laughs> it was true. Yeah, you know, what? I, I, and, and, you know, when I came up, the only weights we had were maybe in the training room, and that was kind of off limits, and that, those weights were our backup catcher, those dumbbells, you know. But, <laughs> but you know what? And then when I remember, you know, with, with Abbott and Finley and McCaskill and Witt, and, you know, I was 39, 40 years old. They'd go in the weight room in the back, and I'd – go back there with them and you know i'd say you know where are these guys well they're they're lifting weights in, in the little weight room we had at angel stadium and i'd go back there and bring a six pack of cores light and sit there and watch them lift weights well i never lifted weights uh you know that was kind of something that uh you yep. know i i ran a lot I, I did a lot of stretching uh that to me was my you know forte as far as trying to stay in shape and uh, you know, ice after and uh, Langley. I think did you iced after. Did you put your yep. arm in a bucket? Yeah, I, I iced bucket my of arm. water ice. Yeah, I iced my arm actually in Little League, and my mom made me ice my arm when I pitched. She goes, Sandy Koufax iced his arm. You're gonna ice your arm. <laughs> so from Little League on, I mean, I used to put my arm in a bucket of ice water because that's what Sandy Koufax did. And my mom planted that in my head. And so I followed that my entire career. Bert, were you a long toss guy? Was is that something that was part of your, your yeah, side Yeah, long day? toss. You know, I did yeah. a lot of distance running. We had yep. the bikes, too. Remember the bikes we yep. had? We could oh, yeah. bike down to Newport Beach yep. and, and uh, look at all the pretty girls and then pedal back. <laughs> right down the riverbed we could yeah. we could take the riverbed right there to anaheim all the way down to newport beach which was probably what 10 miles maybe 15 yeah, and then we pedal back and, yeah 20 mile ride for yeah us, that's tell you what a uh, lot of good memories playing the game a lot of good memories <clears throat> Bert, I, wa I wanted to ask both of you this uh 
you talked about getting information from other pitchers, uh, both on your team and opponents. Did you, f- you ever find a reluctance either by you or by others because you are competing and you're telling them how to be better or they're asking you how to be better? Was there ever a time where there was a reluctance to share information? Well, you know what? I learned my curveball from listening to Vin Scully describe Sandy Koufax's drop. Uh, because, you know, back in the 60s, that mound wasn't 10 inches high. It was 15 to 20 inches. And talking to Mr. Koufax at the Hall of Fame now and also Don Sutton, I know his health is not good right now, and hopefully, you know, he's he's doing better. But uh, talking to them about is Don Sutton told me he wanted to follow Sandy because of the, of the depth, you know, of how high that mound and the steepness that he that they built for him. Now Don Drysdale wanted a flatter mound because he was more three quarter and a mammoth of a man. But uh, you know when I got traded from Minnesota, the first time I got traded to Texas Rangers, uh, Gaylord Perry was on that ball club. Well, Gaylord, if you no know Gaylord, he's an honorary <laughs> old fart. And uh, you know he said, "I want to learn your curveball, son." I said, "Well, you got to teach me your spitter." <laughs> so, so of course uh between starts uh you know every fourth or fifth day uh you know between starts the second or third day you throw on the side for maybe 10 minutes just to get loose for your next start so gaylord goes down and uh you know i show him the grip on the curveball and he picks it up pretty good and he carried it into the game the next time he started well now it's my turn okay now he's gonna he's gonna show me his spitter well, he brings the, the jelly out there, the gel, uh, you know, just regular <laughs> Vaseline. He puts it on my neck and he says, hey, no, just grab it with your fingers. Well, I'll tell you what, I had the best sinker that day. That ball was just <laughs> rocking. <laughs> and I thought, how can I implement this? You know, Gaylord went with the brow, his high, you know, he did that and he had it on the back of his thumb and. I mean, but I threw, I guarantee, I was like a kid at a candy store. I threw for maybe 30 minutes with this spitter. The next day I woke up and my elbow was like barking. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And I thought, how the heck does Gaylord Perry, but he was so strong. Funniest thing I ever saw about Gaylord Perry and Langley, you're like this. All right, Gaylord. If you made an error behind him, say you're Mike Hargrove playing first base for Texas Rangers back in the 70s, and you made an error behind him, Gaylord would beat on the mound, stare out towards center field, and also stare at Mike Hargrove. Like, you know, and there's like 20, 30,000 people watching Gaylord just kind of embarrass Mike Hargrove. All right, well, this went on all season long. Well, in 1977, this uh, before I got traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates and Gaylord, I think ended up going to San Diego. But the last day of the season with the Texas Rangers, we are in the clubhouse. Everybody's packing. We're in Texas. Season's over. Toby Hera, five guys, Toby Hera, uh, Davey Motes, Jim Sundberg, Mike Hargrove, and Tom Grieve. They all come back into the clubhouse. They tackle Gaylord in the center of the clubhouse took five guys to get him down. They got the tape from the trainer's room. They taped Gaylord up and I'm sitting on my locker, just laughing my butt off. And they all said, see you later, Gaylord, have a great winter. Right. And they all leave and Gaylord, you know, he's like a mummy. He's just, he's, 
He's screaming. You know, Somebody let me out. Not, I'm not touching him. You know, I'm not touching him. <laughs> Next spring training, Mike Hargrove faces Gaylord in a spring training game. First pitch, Mike Hargrove told me that his first pitch was between his head and his helmet. <laughs> in a spring training game. So we as pitchers, we have good memories. No. <laughs> How about in uh, for both of you something we don't see uh, anymore in the game very often anyway? I was looking, Bert, at your innings pitched. You were big on staying in ball games and innings pitched, and you already we've already heard Mark say you know you had the attitude of going in for a nine inning performance, which I'm not sure exists anymore. What was the mindset for you guys when you when you took the mound and the start about the distance to go in a game? Mark, I think you mentioned it earlier. We're conditioned to go nine innings. You know, you get the two baseballs in your locker. Once you get to the ballpark, at least that's what they did for me in Minnesota. And, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, after nine innings, you're out there. I had 242 complete games. Mm. Uh, what I took a lot of pride in was the complete games, but also the shutouts. I had 60 shutouts. Uh because if I went nine innings, whether it be a shutout or whatever, it made to me it made my my teammate, my starter, the next day that much better because he had a fresh bullpen. You know, you give Brian Harvey a, a day off now and then, or you know, Mark I, I, uh, it, uh, I, yep. who was our kind of closers back then. You know, it just makes the next day's pitcher better if you could go nine innings. Yeah, and I definitely agree with you 100 percent it was back in those days i mean and it grew up when you were in little league high school college and you were the guy that was counted on in college if you're that friday pitcher it was your responsibility to go complete that game you're supposed to be that horse so when you're you have that mentality that i'm a horse i am not coming out of here at all and i remember in double a when i'm in double a i had a couple guys on bill haywood was our he was our actually our minor league scouting coordinator, but he ended up becoming our manager. He came out to the mound to me in double A, and he he sat there and he goes, I don't think you got a chance to get out of this inning, let alone pitching the next inning. And he turned around and walked off. And I remember the veins, <laughs> veins in my neck popped out, and I went, I'll show you that, SOB. And sure enough, I finished the game. I get nine innings. We're shaking hands. He put his hand out to shake. I looked at him. I spit at him and went right around him. <laughs> so I get to the big leagues a little later, and he comes up to me, and he goes, hey, do you know what? You remember that story? And I go, I'll never forget it. It's one of those that gets etched in my mind. And he goes, do you realize what I was doing? He goes, I go, I didn't at the time, but I get it now. You were pushing me. You were trying to see what I had internally, and could I do that? And it's something that the late, great Dave Henderson, who I played with in Seattle with the Mariners, he told me, hey, there's only two things that are going to happen. These are the scenarios. You're, gonna, you're going to go out there and you're going to finish the game. You're going to go nine innings or they're going to come out and take the ball out of your hands. Those are the only two options that are going to come into play. You need to focus on finishing that game and having that first scenario to where you're walking off the field, shaking hands with your teammates. And it, it, again, that's something that I already knew, but then it just planted in your head that, yeah, my job is to, as Bird said, give that bullpen that opportunity to catch their breath. And you mentioned today's game, both Bert and I and you, Gary, we see it on a daily basis that 
Uh, and Bert, you have the greatest lie. I've always talked to you about this, and you go, I want to find the guy who came up with the 100 pitch limit. I want to find that guy and take yeah. that guy out, you know, because it's so true. Uh, he, he, we never looked at pitches. Those things were never available in the, in the scoreboards in the day that we played. You didn't know how many pitches you threw. You just knew you had a job. And a lot of games where you did get a little bit tired, you would have more movement as the game progressed. So uh, it, it's something that I don't even blame the players in today's game. I blame the system that's in play that these guys aren't conditioned to do it. I think if you turned it around, and I know Nolan Ryan, when he was with the Texas Rangers, was really making a statement saying, hey, I, you know, as a, he was there as the, the team president saying, hey, I want these guys going deeper into games and started pushing those guys. But uh, the game has definitely gone a different direction as far as really uh, bullpen oriented. And a lot of the great arms that are in, the, in today's game are out in the bullpen would have never been in the bullpen. Those guys would have been in that rotation. Well, I think, uh, you know, we're talking old school right here. Uh, people will ask me, you know, uh, you know, how many, did you have a pitch count? I said, no, the hitters let me know when I was done. <laughs> you know, that, that that's pretty much the way yeah. you went about your business back then. You went as long as you could and as hard as you could. And hopefully at the end of the nine innings, you're winning. But, you know, I never minded, you know, when I was young, I lost one to nothing. It was my fault. That's the way yeah. I felt. Yeah. And that, yeah. that drove me, I think, to play as long as I did. And it took me a long time to realize that if I won nine innings and I lost one to nothing, I have 15 one to nothing complete game wins, which I know I'm very proud of that. That's third all time behind, I think, Walter Johnson and Grover Cleveland and Alexander. Uh, that, mm. that, that's, that right. is, that's, I take a lot of pride in that. But even if you lose one to nothing, which I did a lot, it took a long time to realize that I could only control so much. You know what I mean? You you can't you can't you need run support definitely. But uh, you know, as long as you go out there and do your job, that that's all you can ask. Uh, you know, I one year I pitched 325 innings, had 25 complete games, and wanted to play winter ball. Hell, <laughs> Calvin Griffith wouldn't let me. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, the way I, it was. I agree. Same philosophy, Bert. You're right. If I lost one to nothing, man, I would have to look at that guy in the mirror and go, where was my responsibility in this game where we lost one to nothing? And that, if I won 10 to 5, I was a happy camper after the end of the game. But if I lost one to nothing, man, I paid, my body paid the price the next day. As you talked about running, I would run and you get to talk to yourself. You're running by yourself out there. And you get to ask yourself a lot of questions. And I think that's what makes you a better player is when you have yeah, did, those. Did you ever no, answer yourself? Uh, all the time. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, you know, I would sit there and ask myself questions and, and talk to myself on these long runs about, yeah. you know, what had happened the day before. Was it a pitch? And there's a lot of times that, you know, you, you aren't responsible for that, but, if you are, you you have to take responsibility for that. You have to look in the mirror and go, hey, you know what? I got behind three and one in a one nothing game and made that left that pitch a little bit too much over the plate. You have to accept that responsibility and uh, really own up to it. Yeah, even yeah. today when I sit in a closet all by myself, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I reminisce about to, those times. You need to stop that story right now, Bert. <laughs> 
I think I'm going to shut the tape recorder off right now <laughs> <laughs> while we're all not in jail. <laughs> hey, look, we're going to have to wrap it up here. I hate to, but let, let me ask each of you uh, the ongoing question that all pitchers, I think, get. Uh, the guy you least wanted to face in an opposing lineup at the plate. Oh, that's, that's easy for me. Anybody with a bat. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, there were certain guys. Ron Kittle, I, like I mentioned earlier, I gave up a lot of home runs. Ron Kittle hit the most home runs. And I remember a game in Cleveland, first time up, boom, home run. Next time up, I hit him in the ribs like I did Conseco. Didn't even phase him. <laughs> he, you know, he, walked, he ran down the first with a smile on his face. Next time up, boom, home run to right field. I said, okay, I give up. What do I need to do? You know what I did, Langley? I started dropping down on him. I threw sidearm, and I had better success. There are some hitters. You read books of Rod Carew, and I remember sitting on the bench one time, and there's Rod had like three for three, and I said, what do you see off this guy, the starter? He said, you know what? There are certain pitchers, when that ball comes out of his hand, it looks like a beach ball. Think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Tony Gwynn probably had, they had that, that sight. They were able to mm-hmm. pick up the ball right as you release the ball. And uh, there are certain hitters that, that you sense that they saw the ball well out of you. So as I got older, I changed uh, arm angles. How about you, yeah. Mark? Yeah, my my nemesis. Uh, and again, I think you always remember those guys way more than the guys that you had success against. And my, I already mentioned him, the late, great Dave Henderson, when he was with Oakland and I was with Seattle, uh, he literally lived two houses next door to me. So we lived in the same neighborhood when we were with the Mariners. And he came back and, and his offseason home was still in Seattle. And so one year, Dave Henderson was 13 for 15 off me. I couldn't <laughs> get him out. I, I would make the perfect pitch. I'd break his bat and it'd be a little flare. I'd make a mistake. He'd hit it into the seats. And finally, I got him out. I dropped out. As you talked about, I dropped down. I threw a little sinker, and he beat it in the ground. And I ran up the first baseline. Screen, and, I owe you, Hedges. I owe you. And he's laughing the whole time. And then he would, after the season was over, because they would go to the postseason, obviously Seattle. We weren't in the postseason. And he would come home, and he'd go, bragging rights of the neighborhood, bragging rights of the neighborhood. <laughs> he'd lay that on me. And then left-handed hitter Don Mattingly, man, boy, he was the toughest. And I always felt like I could put a blindfold on and get lefties out. I felt pretty confident against left-handed hitters because I had a good breaking ball, and it was always going away from them. Don Mattingly, I remember one at bat in Yankee Stadium, and sure enough, get to two and two, and I'm throwing – Everything that I could think of. I'm dropping down, throwing sidearm sliders, sidearm fastballs. He keeps fouling stuff off, fouling stuff off. It turns into a 15-pitch at bat. Finally, I throw a fastball that barely hits that outside corner, and he drives it down the left field line for a double. He gets to second base, and I look at him. He just kind of smiles and puts his hand down like, hey, I'm Donnie Baseball. It's like, you know, I take my hat off and just went, man, you I threw him everything I could think of. And it's, it, it, that's Don Mattingly. That, that's going to happen. Guys, uh, can't thank you enough. Uh, just a treat just to sit here and listen to the stories. <clears throat> we really appreciate it. Uh, Bert Blylevin, Mark Langston, our guests here on These Sports Rivals. And we invite all of you to uh, learn more about what we do here and listen to other episodes. You can log on to thesportsrivals.com and join the conversation with questions, any suggestions you've got for future shows. Follow us on Instagram at thesportsrivals, Twitter 
at Rivals underscore podcast and on Facebook by searching for the Sports Rivals podcast. Again, uh, to Bert Lyle and Mark Langston, thanks a million. Just a great time. Thank you all for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. Yep, thanks, guys. And remember, it is the rivalries that make the games. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.